Morning, church. Scripture reading is from Acts chapter 21, verse 17 through 26, and this is the word of the Lord. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see all of you. I'd like to, uh, <clears throat> before I jump into the uh, text today, uh, introduce uh, two newcomers. We have Mi-Gyung and Andrew, I believe, who are together. Mi-Gyung, Andrew, where are you sitting? Can you raise your hand for us, please? They're in the back over there. Let's give them a warm welcome. Uh, glad you can join us today. Today we are resuming uh, our series in the book of Acts. It's uh, part 37, believe it or not. Uh, and the title of the message today is Paul's PR Problem. Okay, PR standing for public relations. So it says Paul's public relations problem uh, based on the passage that was just read for all of us. And if you live long enough, uh, you'll begin to notice that there are largely two kinds of people in the world. Uh, first, there are people who say that they don't care at all about what others think of them, uh, so they take pride in carrying on with life without much regard for other people's opinions. Then there are those who seem to care too much about what other people think of them, so they tend to shift their beliefs and practices according to what is most popular in a given time. But today, as we resume our series in the book of Acts, uh, and as we examine how the Apostle Paul conducts himself before the leadership of the Jerusalem church, I wanted us to consider a more God-honoring option that would allow us to love God and love our neighbors better. The last time we studied the book of Acts together uh, was in mid-April, a long time ago. So let me say a few words that should help kind of reorient you to where we are in our series. After Paul's dramatic conversion story in chapter 9, most of the focus has been on the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys, right? If you remember, uh, Paul's first missionary journey was with his older mentor, Barnabas, which we studied together in Acts chapters 13 through 15. Uh, but as 
these two men were contemplating uh, a second journey together, there was this not-so-pleasant fallout between the two, right? Uh, and it was over whether or not to include the young John Mark uh, in, in their next journey. Uh, they, you know, they were debating whether he could really be trusted as a travel companion. Right? They were sharply divided on this issue, so they ended up going their separate ways. Um, Barnabas, he stuck with John Mark, and Paul chose a brother named Silas to accompany him on his second journey, and that's recorded in Acts chapter 16 through 18. Now, Paul's third missionary journey is from Acts 18 through 21, but during this third mission trip, Paul knew that he was likely, that this last, or I should say, this third journey was, was likely going to be his final farewell tour, or his last dance, so to speak. It's like once he returned to Jerusalem, he knew that his time on earth was going to soon come to an end. Remember that it was the prophet Agabus in verse 10 who took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands, saying, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And so after hearing this, the disciples begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem because they did not want their beloved apostle to suffer any more than he already had. And yet Paul's response was, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus. What a remarkable response, a very memorable one, right? And so this brings us to our passage today, where we read about Paul's reunion with the church in Jerusalem, right? The mother church. It's where all, everything got started, right? And things actually start off very well. Uh, it says that in verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, so, you know, as you, as you should know, Luke is the author here, so when, when he writes we, that, that means he was included as one of the, part of the team, so it was like Paul... Luke, and a few others uh, forming the, this mission team. But when we had come to Jerusalem, right, the brothers at the church received us gladly. It's a good start. And on the following day, and so it sounds like uh, the church gave Paul and his team some, some needed time to rest after this very long journey. So on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and to all the elders and and, and all the elders were present, we're told. Right? And James was, was uh, if you remember, Jesus' half-brother, who became one of the most prominent figures in the Jerusalem church. So after greeting them, Paul relates one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And so as you would expect, what's happening here is Paul is giving this uh, detailed mission report to the leaders of the Jerusalem church. And when they heard it, Thankfully, it says they glorified God. And so their response was very good and appropriate, right? Nothing wrong so far. Everything's working out quite well. But here's where things take an interesting turn, right? They said to him, you see, Paul, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? 
they will certainly hear that you have come. And so we have to pause here for a moment, okay? Like, what's going on here? He's all of a sudden being bombarded by these accusations. Well, first of all, Paul was being misunderstood, and, and he was being wrongly accused by some of these Jewish Christians who are described as being zealous for the law. And we know that this was a misunderstanding because Paul never taught that God's law was to be ignored or that Jews should never circumcise their children. What he did teach was that circumcision was not to be used as a requirement for salvation. I mean, that is a completely different message from don't circumcise your children ever, right? It's like this. I thought about an example that maybe uh, you can relate to better. Like if you want to wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning to pray, then that's a good thing. That's great. You know, I would encourage you to do so. It would be very good for you probably. But see, as a pastor, I'm not to treat this very good and healthy discipline of morning prayer as a salvation requirement. And I'm not to judge people to be lesser Christians because they fail to meet my own man-made standard of holiness. That would be wrong for me to do. And there was a danger of doing that um, with circumcision in the Jewish community in Paul's day. And it's possible that some in the Jerusalem church here were subtly being seduced by such thinking. And so the way I look at it is this. These well-meaning Jewish Christians were simply not seasoned enough yet in their theological grasp of the gospel, those are kind of immature in their thinking, that they couldn't comprehend why Paul would speak negatively at all about God's law. The fact that Paul would do that, it basically, uh, to use our language these days, it triggered them to some extent, and it led them uh, to make some false assumptions and false accusations against Paul. They're a bit, a bit sensitive to his comments, right? As you probably notice in your own lives, people can get very sensitive when they hear someone criticize their own culture or their own traditions or customs. Let me, let me give you a more lighthearted example. When I was living in Philly, hanging out with uh, a certain group of people, I was not allowed to say anything bad about Philly cheesesteaks, right? Because if I did, they would lose respect for me immediately, and they would no longer be able to listen to my sermons. They would get stumbled, right? Oh, he's the guy that doesn't like Philly cheesesteaks, right? But here's the truth, okay? I think that Philly, Philly cheesesteaks are a bit overrated, right? That, that's what I really believe. See, but the thing is, if if you want to reach anyone in Philly with the gospel, you shouldn't say such offensive things. It wouldn't be a wise thing to do. And if you're in Philly, forget about rooting for any other team outside of Philly. As a youth pastor, I would have lost my entire youth group if I didn't root for the Phillies or the Eagles during their championship run. I had to memorize a chance, you know, fly, eagles, fly, on the road to, and then ends with E-A-G-L-E-S, eagles, yeah, and I, I was glad to do it. I was actually happy to root for them because my philosophy has always been that people should root for the home team, right, for the sake of supporting their own town and city. But my point is this. My point is that 
One's passion and enthusiasm for a particular tradition or custom, it can become excessive, and it can morph into kind of like a religious commitment of sorts, and even turn into something like a litmus test for moral purity or righteousness. So that if you're not sporting eagle green, for instance, then you're really not one of us sort of thing, right? And, and you know, I'm not saying that everyone did that, but there, there is a small, you know, minority that would be serious sports fans or right? take it to another level. See, it doesn't happen to everyone, but it does happen to some. And it, it doesn't just happen with sports. It can happen with anything. When a healthy desire becomes an excessive desire, right, that's how counterfeit gods are created and pseudo-righteousness is born. And this is exactly why we have seen the rise in what we call now virtue signaling and the prevalence of cancel culture in recent years. It works like this. If you haven't uh, spent too much time thinking about this, let me explain. See, when you reject true righteousness that is only found in the living God, what happens is you leave a massive void in your life. And so what are you left to do? You have to try to fill that void with some man-made, counterfeit, imitation righteousness. That's how we're made. We need that as people. And you do, you, you, you know, you do that, and, and you, by doing it, you, you try to feel like morally pure and virtuous you know, by doing you know, silly things like liking posts on Facebook or Instagram, and you look down on others when they don't do the same. Now, I'm thinking, it must have not gotten that bad in this Jerusalem church, but the leadership of the church may have sensed that something like that was developing among the more zealous members of the body. And so in, in response, they basically told Paul that he had a PR problem, right, specifically with the Jewish believers. So there was uncomfortable tension that was building due to this misunderstanding. And so what did the leadership recommend to Paul in light of this tension? Well, what the leadership recommended has been viewed as somewhat strange and even problematic by some scholars, and there's some debate over what's actually going on here. And uh, part of my sabbatical was spent agonizing over how to make sense out of this myself, and uh, I spent a lot of time just reading and thinking, but I'll spare you from that agony, okay? I'll, I'll spare you from it. I mean, let me put it simply. To put it simply, the goal of the leaders was to change the faulty perception people had of Paul. That was their goal, right? They knew there was a mis misunderstanding. They wanted to change the faulty perception people had of him, right? They wanted to convince the Jewish believers that Paul really did respect Jewish customs and laws, right? even if the gospel did transform the way in which Paul viewed the law. Here's what they asked of Paul, verse 23. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under Nazarite, a Nazarite vow. It doesn't say Nazarite in our text, but that's what uh, scholars assume this was, right? Uh, we have four men who are under a Nazarite vow, 
Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. This all will know, after you do this, that there is nothing in what they have, what, what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. For those of you who may not know, uh, a Nazarite vow was a voluntary vow that people made occasionally in order to express their devotion to God, and it included growing one's hair over a certain period of time, so your hair kind of got long. It included refraining from wine and strong drink, and at the very end, you would make a, an offering in the temple, so you had to pay for the offering, probably an animal, uh, so it cost money. You offered the temple, you'd probably burn it along with your hair. You would cut your hair, and you would offer it as a burnt offering to the Lord. And um, here's an important fact I didn't know. I had to study this because this, this was a head-scratcher for me, but the leaders asked Paul to cover the expenses of these four men who were under a vow because according to Jewish custom, if someone made that gesture, okay, uh, not only was it considered to be a, a charitable act of kindness, but it was also considered to be an act of association. In other words, by paying for the expenses of these four men, Paul would essentially be communicating to everyone that he fully supports and approves of what these men are doing and that he, in fact, respects this particular Jewish custom. That, that's what I mean by association. He would be associating himself with these men right, and basically giving his approval. Now, pastors and scholars have argued whether this was a good strategy or not, and I'm personally not sure what to think of it, to be honest. Uh, you know, mainly because I feel as though there's too much a gap between me standing here and a first century Jew. I just don't quite understand. It's just, it feels odd to me, right? But regardless, we see that Paul agreed to go along with this plan. You know, we're not sure exactly what he thought of it. We just know that he submitted to the church leadership on this matter. Right? He goes along with it. And this is our story today. This is what we read. So what do we do with this? Let me now transition to what I believe uh, we should be taking away from this story. And I have two big ideas I want to share uh, before bringing the message to a close. Okay, number one, first big idea, we should respect traditions, customs, and various cultural expressions, etiquette, let's say, unless the gospel clearly becomes obscured in the process or scripture is directly violated in the process, okay? You tracking? Okay, we should respect customs, traditions, uh, cultural expressions unless, okay, uh, Scripture is violated, right? Or unless the gospel becomes obscured. And I, I believe this principle is consistent with what Scripture teaches, and it's also consistent with what we see Paul doing here in our story. I think you can think of it this way. Uh, Paul was essentially willing to jump through some cultural hoops for the sake of not putting any unnecessary stumbling blocks in front of his fellow Jewish believers. These are Jewish Christian believers. Okay, we're not talking about the Jews who rejected the gospel, right? Those Jews still existed, and they remained fully committed to taking Paul's life, as we will learn next Sunday. In today's story... We're talking about the Jews who identified as Christ followers and are part of the Christian church, right? 
Paul did not want to stumble them. And so the temple ritual that Paul subjected himself to was viewed as a social and ethnic custom rather than a salvation requirement by these Jewish Christians. And so Paul, therefore, was willing to show respect for his Jewish heritage. It was for their sake, right? In his mind, he was not violating Scripture. He was not obscuring the gospel. He was becoming all things to all people in order that he might save some. That was his philosophy. That was his ministry philosophy. I think it's a great one to have. And so I want to reiterate the fact that as Christians, we ought to know that the Bible is not against traditions, customs, or cultural expressions, per se. You know, when Christ comes again, I, I, I thought this image would be helpful. When Christ comes again to complete his work of redemption, and I pray that they would come sooner than later, he will gather the nations by his authority, and his final kingdom will be filled with the unique and various cultural expressions of all the nations. And they'll be made manifest through the arts, right, through music, through, through dance, through language, through literature, and of course, through our favorite thing, food. <laughs> the, the, the food culture in heaven is going to be magnificent. It's going to be awesome. And so the problem is not with culture. The problem is always with sin that corrupts culture. And that's why the Bible is only against culture when the culture begins to challenge God's authority or when the culture begins to obscure the gospel or when it directly violates Scripture. That's got to be clear in your mind. I mean, look at how Paul handled the issue of circumcision in his day. See, he was not against circumcision per se. I mean, in Acts 16, he had Timothy actually get circumcised because he did not want to make Timothy's ministry to the Jews more difficult than it was already going to be. So he was fine with getting, having Timothy get circumcised. But in Galatians chapter 2, we read that he did the opposite with Titus. Right? He strongly refused to let Titus get circumcised because that context was different. In that context, the very gospel was at stake. Like if Titus was circumcised then, people would have interpreted it as Paul caving under pressure and compromising the gospel. So it takes the great discernment in, in being a faithful Christian living in this world. You know, in our story today, Paul would have had to discern if paying the expenses of these four men would be a gospel compromise or if it was going to be simply an appropriate expression of honoring one's culture. He had to make a decision, and he had to discern between the two. And obviously, he discerned that it was going to be the latter. I like uh, Daryl Bach's take on this. Uh, this is what he writes in his commentary. What we see here is Paul being asked to act with cultural sensitivity to the Jewish context he now finds himself in without, without compromising the gospel. And oftentimes we may be asked in ministry or in a given community 
to engage in neutral practices that are culturally driven. That's a mouthful, but I think it's a good concept to try to grasp, okay? He says, um, often we may be asked uh, to engage in neutral practices that are culturally driven, okay? Not because we have to, but because it may prevent unnecessary static from getting in the way of sharing the gospel or doing damage to the unity of the church. Those are some good thoughts there. Neutral practices that are culturally driven. Can you think of some examples in our day? What are some morally neutral practices that are culturally driven? What immediately came to my mind, and might be just an easy, just a very easy example, uh, honoring your elders with a bow. You see this commonly in, in Asian cultures. Honoring your elders with a bow. You know, when we're bowing, uh, we're not worshiping our elders, right? And so it's okay to bow. It's not the same as when Nebuchadnezzar demanded that people bow to him and worship, right? In that scenario, if you're living in Daniel's time, you should have never bowed. Right? But it's different, you know, bowing to elders, that's just a, a form of greeting in a respectful way. Or how about the uh, Western custom of tipping after a meal? We do it not because we have to, although some of you may disagree with that, okay? But the, the original intent was that you didn't have to, right? You did it if you really want to show appreciation. So we, we do it not because we have to, but because it may prevent unnecessary static from getting in the way of sharing the gospel. At least that's, that could be one reason for the Christian. Of course, you, want also, you do it because you want to show appreciation, but also you want to prevent unnecessary static. But let me also mention uh, just one controversial cultural practice that I personally would advise against, okay? And that is bowing down to your ancestors at the ancestral table that has a spread of choice food items for ancestors to receive and enjoy. That's also part of the uh, East Asian culture and probably other cultures as well. And I remember uh, growing up in Korea, uh, once a year, <clears throat> we would visit my, my grandparents' place at least once a year on my mom's side, and they'd have a table set up with like choice fruit and like nice-shaped uh, rice cakes, and it'd basically be offered, and also the incense, and be offered to the ancestors, and my mom would always refuse, thankfully, to bow before the ancestors in that manner, right? I think that was a wise choice on, her beha on, uh, on behalf of the family to, to be an example for the family, and I, I personally never bowed. I, I personally wouldn't, would never do it because of what it signifies, right? And, and in my mind, that would be an example of, of one's culture clashing with the Bible. <clears throat> so not all cultural practices are neutral. That's my point. But many are. My second big idea <clears throat> is this. With the freedom that we've been given in Christ, okay, we should do our very best to love our weaker brother. Okay? Let me put in quotations, our weaker brother. However, uh, we should never allow the weaker brother's faulty theology to become normative for everyone else. I'll explain what I mean by that. 
But let's, let's break this in two, okay? First is this. With the freedom we've been given, we should do our best to love the weaker brother. And the expression of weaker brother shows up in Paul's letters, but the concept is also present in our passage today, which is why I bring it up, okay? Um, but let me give you uh, a few references here. Romans 14, verse 1 and 2. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. You know, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Okay? And, and we're not against vegans or vegetarians here. <clears throat> Paul, you know, Paul, in his time, people were dealing with this issue because they weren't sure whether to eat meat sacrificed to idols or not. And, and uh, you know, most meat was sacrificed to idols. I think, I think some people chose to just not eat, not eat meat altogether and then judge people who did. And so, and this kind of teaching was necessary. <clears throat> but <clears throat> there's also 1 Corinthians 9, 19 uh, uh, through 23, a very famous passage. And it reads, again, from the Apostle Paul, for though I am free from all, so I'm free, I'm a, I'm, I am spiritually free, I'm not bound to any man's, you know, man-made laws or anything else. Um, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant or slave to all that I might win more of them. That's Paul's philosophy. Right? To the Jew, I became a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Or to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Talking about the Gentiles. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And I do this all for the sake of the gospel. That, that's was Paul's ministry philosophy. And it was a good one. And so within Paul's theology, those who were not able to fully enjoy their Christian freedom because they in some way felt bound by their own Jewish customs and rituals, right, they were considered to have a, quote-unquote, weaker faith. Right? They, that was the weaker brother. And as I touched upon earlier, you know, Paul, uh, though calling them the weaker brother, he taught that those who are strong, right, and, and the strong in his mind were those who understood their Christian freedom. The ones who were strong, they were supposed to be willing to occasionally restrict their own freedoms for the sake of the weaker brother. Right? That's how it's supposed to play out in Paul's mind. And that's one way uh, we can understand what Paul is doing in our story today, even. Right? I mean, it's not like he had to associate with the four men who were under this Nazarite vow, right? He didn't have to pay for their expenses, but he did. And by doing so, he was voluntarily restricting his own freedom for the sake of his weaker brothers in the church. I like how the well-known scholar F.F. Bruce put it. He once wrote, A truly emancipated spirit, like Paul's, is not in bondage to its own emancipation. Let me read that one more time. A truly emancipated spirit like Paul's is not in bondage to its own emancipation. In other words, here's my paraphrase of that, okay? Those who are truly free do not become slaves to their own freedom, right? They learn to master their freedom by not abusing it or not not, by not flaunting their freedom before others. Now, that's being a master of your freedom. I was reminded of <clears throat> an example 
uh, given by a, uh, an older Korean pastor I know uh, who served and I think continues to serve in New York City. He was at a conference one day and he, he had a chance to have lunch with a very well-known reformed Presbyterian pastor who was all about Christian freedom. You know, he would, this, this pastor was, had no problem smoking cigars and, and drinking scotch and publicly doing so, and he had no problem, you know, drinking beers during lunch. And so they, they were drinking. They ordered a drink or two, uh, probably beer. And uh, this very well-known person, he, he turned to the, you know, older Korean pastor and said, oh, you're not going to drink? You don't believe in Christian freedom? A little bit sarcastically, probably. And this Korean pastor turned to him and said, no, 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 I, I believe in Christian freedom. It's, it's out of my freedom that I am choosing not to drink. And that's the sort of a personal vow that he made, right, so that he wouldn't uh, stumble anyone in his church that he's ministering, given his context, right? That, that's an example of not being a slave to your own freedom. In this way, brothers and sisters, true freedom in Christ sometimes means doing what you don't have to do for the sake of others. And ultimately, this is what Christ himself modeled for us, right, through his own life and death. You know, even though Jesus was fully free to live as God, he willingly took upon the restrictions of human flesh in order to save us. And that's why we can say that with the freedom we've been given, we should do our very best to love the weaker brother as well. Amen? But there's also a second part to the statement, right? <clears throat> the second part went like this. Even though this may be true, we should never allow the weaker brother's faulty theology to become normative for everyone else. And I believe that the second half of that statement is just as important as the first half, uh, because uh, given how often this happens in the church and in the world we live, so don't forget this. Right? Don't, don't, don't forget the point I'm trying to make here. Uh, despite Paul's effort to love the weaker brother, notice he never taught that the faulty theology or let's say the, the bad policy decisions of the weaker brother should be counted as truth and be imposed upon everyone else. Yes, we should accommodate a brother or sister who may struggle with certain kinds of food or drink, but Paul never does what many Christians tend to do in our day. Just to give you an example, I was, I was hanging out with a bunch of older Baptist pastors. This is very common in the Baptist tradition. They outright ban alcohol for all of their members. They, they, they treat it like law that you must follow. That's how they do it. And, and when I, when I kind of share with them that it's, you know, somewhat common within certain Presbyterian circles, especially from the Scottish Presbyterian, that, that, that strand, people do enjoy scotch and, and cigars. I personally don't. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But they do, you know. Do I think that sometimes they do too much of it? Yes, I do, Okay. Uh, anything excess is, can, can become sinful. But just, just drinking a little scotch and you know, smoking a cigar, I, I would never say that that in itself is automatically sinful, right? 
uh, but many Christians do. Not just with scotch, but every, any kind of alcohol. They would just outright ban it simply because a small minority truly do struggle with alcohol. Right? Based on the small, small minority struggling with it, they, they make an outright ban for everyone and apply it to everyone, impose upon everyone. And that's not what Paul does here, ever. He declares that all foods are clean, and he never compromises on that truth. But he says that, and then he encourages believers to exercise personal discernment right, as they patiently bear with the weak in faith. Again, in our culture, we tend to do the opposite. A few people struggle with homosexual desires. Oh, yeah? Well, we make it normative for all. We, we force people to celebrate and accept it as norm, as good. It's, it's totally backwards. A small minority Struggle with gender dysphoria? Oh, yeah? Okay. Well, let's make everyone now accepted and celebrate as a good thing as well. It's completely backwards. A small minority are afraid of the unvaccinated. What do we do? Well, we tell everyone that they have to be vaccinated or they can't show up for work or worship or do anything. They're stripped of their privileges. I was shocked to hear... Even now, even after all that we know about vaccines, that a growing number of colleges, and we're doing this research because one of our, you know, kid, our oldest kid is thinking of colleges now, a growing number of colleges are still requiring vaccinations or you can't attend the school. <laughs> this must be a joke, we thought. It's real. You know, don't you know that even the CDC, I don't trust the CDC personally, but, you know, after, after what they did the past two years. But if you're the type that follows CDC guidelines, even the CDC has recently come out with the fact that there should be no distinct distinction made between the vaccinated and unvaccinated. And yet, this is what the schools are doing. It's craziness. It's completely backwards. There are some who, who won't even meet my wife because she's unvaccinated. And by the way, she said it's okay if I share that, right? I mean, are you, have you gone crazy? After what we know now, especially? This is not 20, 2019 or 2020. Brothers and sisters, it's, it's good and proper to patiently bear with those with weaker faith. It's, it's good and proper to be patient with those even living with a faulty theology. But we should never allow the weaker brother's faulty theology or bad policy prescriptions to become normative for everyone else. Paul never did that. And this is a very important point to remember, especially because we we know, because we experienced it, we, we, we continue to experience it, we know how the minority is easily given the power to essentially tyrannize the majority and take captive the entire culture with their faulty beliefs. I want you to know that what we're talking about today, these are important principles that helped your leaders navigate through COVID 
You know, we had to make a decision. And what, what, what criteria do we use? Well, we had to look at Scripture, you know, whether we should shut down service or not, whether we should have certain mask policies or not, whether we should require vaccines or not. You know, when other church leaders were claiming that in the name of loving our brothers, we needed to impose weak theology or faulty theology and bad policy upon everyone, we had to draw a line in the sand and say, no, that's a very poor application of Scripture. We will accommodate to a certain degree, but we cannot mandate what Scripture does not mandate upon our people. This is where you see how, uh, how the Bible can be very practical. And I, I don't want you, I, I don't think you should t- take my comments merely as social commentary. Oh, Pastor Paul is doing it again. He's talking about, you know, politics or whatnot. No, I, I'm giving you, to the best of my ability, some gospel application, okay? As Christians, you don't just want to hear the gospel, okay? You need to learn how to apply the gospel to real-life situations if you want to grow in wisdom. Many Christians just don't know how to do that. And so they hear the gospel, and they continue to live and think like pagans. And that must not be the case for us. I refuse to disciple you and train you in such a manner. You know, my, I, I can just stick with the theory of the gospel each week, okay? And I, w- I would sound incredibly irrelevant, right? The, the preacher's job is to preach the gospel, yes, but it's also to help his people connect the dots and apply the gospel in everyday living. That, that's what I strive to do, right? So as I mentioned in my opening... There are largely two kinds of people in the world. First, there are people who say that they don't care at all of what other people think of them. Then there are those who seem to care too much of what other people think of them. But today we we observed how the Apostle Paul cared about what others thought up to a certain point. His desire was to become all things to all people in order that he might save some. So, of course, he had to care. But it was God's word that regulated how far he would go in becoming all things to all people. So, brothers and sisters, we would be wise to follow his example as we ourselves testify of God's grace in our own respective places in life. So I submit that to you for your consideration. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you for revealing to us the truth of your gospel, that we are saved by grace through faith alone in your Son, Jesus Christ, and that we have been set free from having to prove ourselves morally pure before you. And as free people, you want to confess that we obey your laws not to prove ourselves worthy, but because we love you. And you've given us new hearts that delight in the law of God. And it's also in our freedom that we know that there may be times where we're called to willingly restrict our freedom, not because we must, but because we desire to love and serve those whose consciences may be weaker than ours. Just as Jesus graciously loved us by becoming one of us, we pray that you would grant us a deep affection 
for our Lord Jesus, that we may extend the same grace to others as we testify of your gospel truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand and give praise to God.